Any day of the week is a good day with better buddies. Hello, and welcome back to Better Buddies, the best friend podcast, finally hitting our six-month mark. I'm your host, RJ, and with me tonight is James. Say hi, James. That's me. I'm sorry. I, I, I thought you were going to keep going. Hello, everybody. Hi. You clearly have not listened to enough of this show. I make people introduce I, themselves after I say their name. I, I'm sorry. I Yeah. I, I'll figure it out someday. Someday. Someday my Fortunate Son video will load. It has not loaded yet in this chat. But really? uh, so I believe someday it will. Someday I'll find you. I don't know that song. I don't either. I made it up. Oh, nice. <laughs> you, should, you should make a whole thing. Uh, so for once, we have you at the start of the episode, not the end of it. So uh, I'm glad for yeah, that. Yeah, I'm happy I'm happy to be here, for sure. And uh, our Better Buddies icebreaker for this evening is one that I think we, we're we either going to be in very much agreement or complete disagreement. Okay. Uh, the Better Buddies icebreaker, what fictional character would you choose to be president? What fictional character would you choose to be president of the United States? Um... I would say Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Yeah, because I think he's like, like he probably knows how to run stuff. Um, he's like basically the closest thing we have in modern America to like a capitalist saint. Uh, and uh, he seems like a really good guy from the Coca-Cola I'd argue he's ads. He's a communist saint. He brings something out of nothing. I would argue and everybody that gets he's, some. He's capitalist because he's it's it's production, and that I don't think unless the elves have all an equal stake in production, but I don't think they do. Um, so I would argue that he's the most one of the most capitalist mythical figures to ever emerge. Uh, thank you, Coca Cola, and also <laughs> the Catholic Church. Uh, so I would I would say Santa Claus. I think he's a, he's a master of public image. He knows production. He's basically a fictional robber baron. He's I, I I think he'd be a good one. That would be my argument. Okay. Uh, I was just gonna go with Leslie Nope from Parks and Recreation. Why? Uh, because despite her over enthusiasm for government and its function, she actually does have good ideas and knows how to get things done, and has some moral integrity. I do feel like she is kind of what we want politicians to be, which is enthusiastic, but also like a little, not like stupid, but like, you know what I mean? Uh, Cause like if she was really, yeah, if she was really smart or always like thinking ahead, she wouldn't be as appealing of a character, but and it's, it's not really, that she's not smart. It's yeah. she does plan for things. She, her whole deal is that she plans. He's like overly enthusiastic at yeah. times. And like clouds. Well, I think that's actually what's interesting is I know that the show 
received radically different receptions between the first season and the second season um, because I know common criticism apparently of Leslie as a character during the first season was that she was just kind of dumb yeah, and, and that she didn't uh, like they didn't really know how to write her like it was clear that she was supposed to be very hard working but very she came off very as, enthusiastic but in going for the enthusiasm they kind of didn't know how to gauge the intelligence of it because yeah. we as the common people think the common opinion in general that most people can agree with is politicians are not the greatest people at nearly any level and they accomplish nothing. So how do you take this enthusiastic person who's trying to accomplish stuff and still have, and still reconcile it with that public perception of it? Like clearly well, I think, no one yeah. smart would be enthusiastic about this because they understand how much grime and muck there is in the system. Well, or they would just be too smart or too like conniving. Yeah. Or not almost not dumb enough to be honest. Um because honestly, being being honest is at times, especially in politics, like a dumb thing to do because there oh, are absolutely. people who just don't, they just don't, they just don't care. They're just like, well, okay, great. Um, I'm going to take what you told me in good faith and we'll just, we'll just fuck you with it. Um, which that's how stuff goes. Like, you know, if you're getting into a game, you should know the rules. You don't have to play by them all the time, but you should know what other people are going to be playing by. And I like, the idea of Leslie Nope and what they were trying to communicate where it was like, um, it was honestly weird. I, I would consider her like a, you could argue like a feminist figure for sure. Um, I don't think so. but I, I never felt like she was, I was just like, mainly because I feel like they didn't add the feminism stuff until later in the series, like the more blatant stuff. I, to me, she was, she was always just a woman who was like, it's like she has to deal with just the byproducts of government, which are yeah. like a bunch of outdated opinions of older men. Well, and I think that um, and women. I'd argue that would be what made her a good, a good role model for feminism. She didn't stick her head in the sand and let them let their opinions walk all over her. Mm-hmm. But she also didn't go out of her way to be rude about it. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, that was like, that was the nice thing. She made her points. She buckled down, got work done, did her best to make changes and make her voice heard, and actually did make effective changes without being I don't know. Rude is again the only word I have, but I'm not sure it's sufficient. Well, it's like I I do think it's nice because um I don't know. I feel like if if uh, a lot for a lot of male characters and for like a male character, if you're trying to make them that like you can't make a guy character overly emotional um, like she is like yeah. and I don't mean overly emotional in general. I mean, like what we would say would be overly emotional for a guy like she definitely has more like quiet or just like overly emotional moments that are played for comedy, which as a guy like if you tried to do it with a guy it would feel odd, but it feels fine with 
like a girl or specifically with Leslie Nope, because it's like, well, she, that's just her. Yeah. Um, she is just, she's a very like energetic, enthusiastic person. She's very emotional. She's very involved in her work. So when something doesn't like line up, um, she's gonna, there's the, like, she can get like, she can have these great moments that I'm sure were like improvised quite a bit by, um, fuck, what's her name? Amy. Uh, Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler. That's it. Yeah. And it's just, it's nice. Cause I feel like with guy characters, especially in comedies, usually their biggest fault is either that they're arrogant or more importantly that they're dumb. Yeah. And usually in comedies, what's made fun of with women is that they're like overly emotional or something like that. So it was nice to see like just a character, like a portrayal of someone like Leslie Nope, where it's like, okay, like I, she comes off to me like within the context of comedy is very natural. It's like, yeah, okay. That was the like, word I was thinking. I can, of. She's a very natural, naturally written character after season one. Yeah, it just it feels more like um, you can kind of see what they were going for with her character. And it's like, okay, I know people like this. I've been around people like this. Um, I would bet that there are people like this in government. Yeah. Amy Poehler's uh, performance really sells it. The writing is decent. I think the weakest part of any of those shows, like The Office, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Good Place, stuff like that, is they can get a As little that they're too... they're all written by the same dude? <laughs> they are, actually. Or, like, the same guy. There's one guy I know who has had a hand in all of them. His name is Mike Shore. That's because they were all another... created, like... The Office wasn't directly created, but the American version he helped co-create. He, he created did. Parks uh, and Rec. He created Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He created The Good Place. Mm-hmm. Which He did all that. They're all good. But it's also one guy. Yeah, I also think, like, I like what he's done with a lot of his shows, um, where he really did make a different, helped make a different kind of sitcom. I do think at at the end of the day, though, like, sometimes it's a little too sappy or it's a little too goofy, like, um, and mainly because I think it's a, it's a comedy, but also because it's a, they became comedies with like what was supposed to be a broader appeal. Yeah. Um, I have to give him credit though, that the good, I haven't seen hardly anything of the good place, but I did mm-hmm. read an article about how when they ended the show, he was like, yeah, we could have extended it, but this is, this was the end. There was no need to extend it further just to extend it. This is where the story well, was going to end. I think that's the thing is he is a guy who really understands like television form and format, especially when it comes to a comedy and they, they definitely learned their lesson after the office. Yeah. Um, because they learned like, okay, you not only have to make the main romance of the show interesting in the buildup, you have to have a plan for what happens after those two characters get together. Like, what does their life look like? What is it like? What are the stresses? What are the victories? Like, I think that was probably the biggest it, issue with the office. Cause is they the didn't office focus. just kind of stopped. Yeah. Right. It, it didn't, it didn't help either that the formula seemed to be, Oh, well, everyone is the straight man. Basically when Michael's in the room, like Which, Steve Carell was, 
a commanding comedic performance oh, yeah. in that role. Like, it didn't every... help that, like, after he left, they tried to fill that with multiple people. And at one point, I think even Jim, like, one of the lines he says is straight up, like, oh my god, does this position make you dumber? Because he's wide yeah. to be charged for a little bit. Yeah, I think, like, they just didn't have a plan. Well, one, they didn't expect the the American office to work like it did. Yeah. Um, mainly because it's it's funny because uh, one of the same issues with uh, Michael Scott had a big issue, kind of like um, Leslie Nope had a big issue, where I believe in the first season, audiences reacted kind of negatively to him. They were like, he's just kind of mean. He's yeah. not funny. He's just mean. And the thing is, like, in the British office, that was the point, is that he's mean, but you're supposed to make fun of him. Yeah. But um, American audiences were more like, he's They want mean. a likable character. They, well, they want, they, they want meanness to be dumbed down. They know that, they know that people can be mean. Like, Americans are more than aware of that. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm thinking more of, like, they're aware, the American audiences are where people can be mean, but they want the mean person to be the villain, clearly. They don't want, they, or they want it to be someone who gets redeemed. They or don't they, I want think it to just be there. The, the thing with Americans that's difficult is, like, I think Americans are genuinely very optimistic um, people, uh, especially... Uh, in their fictional media, like we yeah. loved to romanticize, and maybe it's just because of how the country was made. Maybe it's because of, of how it's developed, or where we're going, or whatever. But the point uh, is, I think I think Americans really are good at finding redeemable qualities in what would be non-redeemable people, and um, it, they almost naturally seek that out. But the issue is that Americans are also, they don't like complexity. They like simplicity. Mm-hmm. So they like to have a, a guy who might not be good, but is redeemable. And they also like to have a guy who's clearly evil. It's like the Han Solo and the Darth Vader yeah, kind it's of like, thing. Uh, to continue using The Office, I'd argue Ryan yeah. became that. That, like, Scott he, he, became the Han Solo, where he's not a good guy, but people liked him. Whereas they took mm-hmm. Ryan and made him the clearly evil character. Yeah, like I, which I feel like they should have. I know it's a comedy. I feel like they should have pushed it further. I feel like they should have actually had Ryan be like a genuine dick. I feel like the yeah. problem with Ryan is he's played as too pretentious or too educated almost to be well, taken seriously. And for um, a while, he was that. Like, he, like he got the upper management job. He was that evil. Yeah, and then. As soon as his world falls apart and he winds up back in the office, he doesn't do anything ever. Like he sits in the mm-hmm. broom closet and does his attempts to be relevant, and none of it has any impact on anything. That to me was the biggest problem with the office, and I think it's what they kind of actually fixed with Parks and Rec, and I don't think it's something they've managed to really translate since is uh, the office had like maybe f- that obviously it had the core cast who like the two, you know, Michael, Dwight, Jim, Pam. So four yeah. people, I would argue. The main four. And yeah, and that is, they are obviously the, the centerpiece of the show, if not in just the popular culture, then just because of 
the way that most of the narratives go. Like most yeah. of the narratives just stand around them. Um, but there's so many other people in the office who you who basically just end up blending in with the drywall, oh, and yeah. they're all they're all like potentially good characters. It's just they they weren't developed, and they kind of became like sidecar riders to the main I'd, four. I'd argue the best side character on that show is Creed Bratton. I would argue that too. He's because the one with the, the he's most just so consistent wild and out there. And oh, they're he's, consistently wild and out there with him of like just yeah. non sequitur. He'll just say something and you just go, wait, what? And it continues well, and on. And that's what people kind of want. I feel like with some of those characters is like, you can have a person who's a minor character on a sitcom and they can be great, but it just means their character has to be both impressionable and consistent. Yeah. Um, like that's why Creed works is because like, I don't remember, I know there were episodes about Meredith. I know there were episodes about like Stanley and Kevin yeah. and the accountants, well, Angela. Fair, there like, were never there were never episodes about them though. It was always them in relation to that, one of the main four. Which is why I think Parks and Rec works better, mainly just because Parks and Rec, all of the characters that you know that one, the cast is way bigger. Uh, like the actual developed characters, there's like eight, maybe I would argue, because um, it's like it's Leslie, Leslie Ron, and Ron, Ron, Leslie and Ron, Andy, Andy, um, Tom, uh, uh, Tom, Jerry, Jerry. I'd argue, uh, April. Well, April, um, Donna, Donna, Ben and Chris, Ben and Chris. So there's ten. That's a huge cast, and the great thing about all those characters is you could legitimately have an episode surrounding each of them. Like almost yeah. every single one of those characters, there's an episode that that where they get some time to shine. And I think it the B plots helped a lot. The part. Like I don't remember yeah, do. Office yeah. B plots really happening, except in like very like I barely remember any Office B plots happening. That's Maybe what there were I found some the most... with. Ryan and uh, Mindy Kaling's character. Oh, um, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, there were I never mean, any real B plots in the office if it wasn't one of the four. Well, but I think that, Parks and Rec would constantly have. Okay, we've got the main story going on here with say, uh, Anne and uh, Leslie trying to. I don't know. Uh, break were, ground on the park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the other side of it, we've got uh, Tom and the boys all doing their bachelor party and hitting all these locations and meeting all these people and, like, growing as a group. Yeah, and yeah. You could do things like that. Well, the the I think they built that show or they kind of realized pretty quickly that the way to sustain a show is because you're telling it over such a long period of time, all of those characters have to be able to Absolutely. function on their own. You can't afford the more characters you have where you can put them in episodes. It's actually kind of insane to go back and watch old episodes of parks and rec, because there really will be like three or four plots, mm -hmm. um, especially in the mid seasons involving like quite a few of the characters. 
Like, everybody's in there. And part of it was, uh, like, Donna. Yeah. Donna in the first, like, two seasons, at least the first season, if not the first two seasons, was a super minor character. Mm -hmm. Like, would come in for single lines in scenes where they needed a person from the Parks and Rec department to come in and say something. But didn't really get mm-hmm. like plot-wise screen time. Yeah. But as things developed, she got picked up into more and being that like kind of inscrutable, high taste, uh, has more experiences than she's letting on. Well, I I like the idea that Donna is like the only person in the office who recognizes that her job or feels that her job is just a job. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, it's just it's just what I do. She's not like Leslie, obviously, where she's super passionate. She's not like Ron, where she wants to take it down. She's not like April, where she hates it. She's not like Andy, where she's unaware of it. She's not like Ben, where she thinks she can fix it. Like Donna is the one character who's just like, she's for the most part, either because, done. yeah, she's well, she's just like this. It's like day in, day out. It's like, this is my fucking job. Like, this is what I do. Like, like even I Jerry is stuff. there because he loves the office. Like, he, he, Jerry loves Jerry, the simplicity. Jerry's, like, just supposed to be the genuine, like, one. He's basically just, he may as well just be another citizen of the town. He's, like, a citizen who just happened to wander his way into the state government, or the local yeah. government. Like, he's he's the most... Um, because he's like everything the town is where he's like, he's very gullible. He's not very smart. He's overweight, but it's all spun. People make fun of him for it, but it's all spun for positive. Like he ends up becoming the mayor of the town living past a hundred. His wife is beautiful. He has like a beautiful family. And he's like, it's not even just that it's beautiful. It's a loving family. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, he's like perfectly content with, his life and how it's been. And um, he really is. It's like the American dream. It's like, man, I I wish I could like be as happy as that guy. Um, It's because he messes up, but he's yeah. yeah. Well, they also make a point of it. Like he messes up out when he's at work, but at Mm -hmm. home he's in complete control of his environment. And it's just that sheer level of the outside world is a dangerous place where you'll mess up, but at home, everything is fine. Well, it's also like, you just, you never get the sense that, which I liked actually about, I, I, I think his name is Jim. I forget what the actor's, the, the actor's name is who plays Jerry, but uh, Jim O'Hare. I like Jim O'Hare. That's it. I liked the fact that when he messes up, he like, it's very rarely he's like frustrated or he never has like an outburst. It's just kind of like he just fucks up. And it's obviously, quiet resignation. obviously, yeah, you have to look at it like through the lens of a comedy. So he's just in in a comedy sense, he's just supposed to be the character that everyone can kind of like shit on. Yeah, because uh, everybody knows someone like that. And but he's also um, in a different sense, he's like one of the most stable characters because he's just like he's just a regular dude. Like yeah. he he, like has he messes up a, and he'll be like, oh geez, well yeah, time to yeah. do it correctly. He has a life outside of uh, 
and not even like, ha, fuck you guys, like who work in the government. I have a life. He's just like, yep, I go to work and then I go to my family and uh, that's my day and I'm happy with it. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's like, I don't know. It, I think the best thing about those sitcoms is that they are very uh, endearing. I think sometimes they can be a little too overly sweet or a little too, sounds weird, but like childish almost. But for the most part, I think Michael Schur sitcoms are pretty good. I've, I've seen most, I've seen most of The Office, all of Parks and Rec a few times, most of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I've only seen a little bit of The Good Place. So yeah, I've seen all of The Office at least once. I've seen Parks and Rec multiple times. I've seen, like, half of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I've caught, like, an episode of The Good Place. Get into The Good Place, because it just... it. Uh, if it was shot, can you imagine if the good place was shot like an office, like like the office? Like, no. I feel like if it just looked different, it would be better. Like if the good place just looked regular, that would almost fit better with the tone. But it just looks a little too like sitcommy for me. Oh, it see, looks a little too like. I I haven't seen enough of it to really make this judgment, but I figure that works in its favor. Because it's supposed to be depicting a place that is not of this earth. I would I would agree, but I think just from what I've heard how the show goes, it would almost be better to depict it as otherworldly, but still like among the regular. Um, well, I, I, I think it's also just personal bias because I don't like the yeah. the more static sitcom type stuff and to be fair, there are definitely elements of the single camera style I don't like. I don't always like like very shaky shots. I don't always like um, mm-hmm. what is it like the Talking Heads. Yeah. I'm not always a huge fan of those. Like I think they definitely overuse them in the Office, especially in the later seasons. Oh God, yeah. I think in, in Parks and Rec they kind of work. Well, they but they don't really do it quite as much like you might get something with leslie or ben but it's not like they're going to every character for it you know what i mean that's a good point it i think usually the what works in parks and rec's favor is the talking heads are very short compared to the office like i feel like the office talking heads would be longer and a little more drawn out because that show was just less frenetic like parks and rec is definitely more cartoony both a good yeah. and a bad way um but that means it's more upbeat so it's talking heads there's usually more like jokes and kind of snap to them whereas the office's talking heads are like it was well, kind of I'm, confusing because you i want to make sure i know understand you're talking about mm-hmm. where it's just like the person talking into the camera right yeah the person who yeah. they'll just sit him down talk to the camera like most well, of the talking Heads and Parks and Rec, I feel like, are pretty, not quick, but, like, the energy behind them is definitely different than The Office. Well, I, I think, think part of it is that with The Office, because The Office is straight up set up blatantly as, okay, this is a fake documentary, they have to go through with way more people and do the talking heads with, like, three or four people at a time. About yes, this just were- happened, what do you take on it? Versus Parks and Rec, where, uh, I mean, like, in early seasons, they'd have Leslie at her desk, because it's kind of following her, 
And then later on, they might do one with, like, when they first get engaged, when they first find out they're going to have triplets, there's a talking head where Ben is sitting at the table having done all the math on how much it's going to cost to raise these kids, and he's flipping out. But it's a quick, like, really snappy, like, it's one joke about the computer laughed at him, and they ca- he gets called away, and that's it. It's, like, 30 seconds. It's, yeah, it's more distilled, it's more revised, I feel like which makes it stand out. It's not necessarily better. It's just different. Um, hold on. Do you mind? I have to go to the bathroom really bad. I have to take a piss. <laughs> I will be back. Hold on. Okay, we'll cut this. <sighs> All right. You back? I'm back. All right. Peace. Oh, that was good. <laughs> uh, so we've been talking about Michael sure sitcoms for a long time. I think this is as good a time as any to get into the segment. Uh, buddies recommend. Yes. Of a piece of media that you recommend. And I'm going to start just because I suspect yours may lead to another long discussion. Mm, uh, let's see. My recommendation, because I said I would recommend it last week, is the sequel to The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, the Dark Knight... I think it's The Dark Knight Rises? Shoot. Is that... The one, you're talking about the one with Bane? No. I'm talking about the graphic novel. So... Novel. Oh, shit. Yeah. The Dark Knight... Okay. No. The graphic novel is... Uh, so the first one was Bat- Old Man Batman as uh, he comes back and he's 60 and he... Uh, oh, he's 55. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> the sequel is Dark Knight Strikes Again. Uh, also known as DK2, and it's old Batman leading a rebellion against President Lex Luthor and Brainiac, and it's does it great. Take place in modern what? time? Does it take place in like modern time? When does it take place? Uh, it's modern, slightly futurish. Okay, but all the superheroes are old. Uh, Batman is a rebellion leader because he's changing the status quo. Meanwhile, like Superman is under the thumb of the government because they have the bottle city of Kandor held hostage. So that's the last remaining Kryptonians, and if Superman doesn't do what they say, they'll kill them all. Uh, Jesus. The Flash has been forced into running on a treadmill to generate power for half the country. The Atom is trapped in a Petri dish inside a freezer in a lab. And Plastic Man has been held in Arkham Asylum. But it's just this great, like, Batman goes around recruiting the old heroes to come out of retirement and help him out. Uh, There's a lot of great scenes of, like, when they go to rescue Plastic Man, it turns out, oh, Arkham Asylum has been closed for the last however many years because the prisoners broke out and held hostages, and the government decided, we're just going to lock the gates. And so the, pr- the inmates, who are all ex-Batman villains, have all been stuck inside, trapped in Arkham. Like, so as they're scaling the building, these hands are reaching out, and their phrases of, of these, like, half it, completely insane, starving lunatics, or like, riddle me this, and born on Monday and showing like them reaching out of the windows, trying to grab them. So these are all the old, like big name Batman villains who have just been like, 
So wait, is it that they've just been left in Arkham, or yeah. what, what is this? So, uh, the, that, and that's just one portion of it, because the main fight <laughs> is against President Lex Luthor, but, like, Batman has to go bust Plastic Man out of Arkham, who's been in this, like, pressure-sealed chamber to keep him contained, but the Arkham, okay. the Arkham inmates have been, they helped, they broke out in a, they not broke out, but they held a riot, basically, and took control of the asylum, mm-hmm. and held the staff hostage, making demands of, like, hey, bring us all this stuff, and they, the inmates figured, well, we've got the hostages, we can hold out for forever, and they couldn't hold out, but because the gates, like, everything was shut down, and they weren't getting out, and no one was letting them out. They just stuck there eating rats and each other. Or, like, uh, So... Yeah, go ahead. What, so, like, do, is there a period of time where the hostages go, and the the inmates are just left with what they got from the hostages? Like, they're, the yeah. law enforcement isn't going to go back into Arkham? Yeah, like, that's, in- that's the way it's been left. Um, and, like... Like... They wind up rescuing Flash, and they rescue all the heroes, and... That's kind of cool. ...stage the rebellion, and it's this whole, like... But in order to keep compliance, at one point, they, uh... Or in order to, like, keep Superman in line and remind him, like, who's in charge, the Lex Luthor and Brainiac destroy Metropolis, including the Daily Planet. So it's... Wait, why did they do that? Uh, to keep Superman in line. Oh, it's like a, like a warning yeah. or something. But okay. it kill it destroys the Daily Planet, including like his boss and Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane. Oh, she dies. Yeah, it's not like an on-screen thing. It's just like a oh, in the destruction, he finds the locket. Um, and ever reverse death. Has he ever brought someone back from the dead? I know he's reversed time. Has he ever reversed no, no, someone no. dying? He's never done that. That's like the one thing he hasn't done yet. Uh, yeah, basically. Like, and now he can reverse his own. Has death. There ever he can reverse his own death, but he can't reverse other people's. How? Uh, in the famous death of Superman, first appearance of Doomsday, he died. There was this whole thing of, like, Superman is dead, Rise of the Superman, all these other people showed up with similar-esque powers trying to, t- trying to take his place. And, in essence, God looked at him and said, Yeah, you're going back. You're still needed. Bye-bye. God or, like, another God? Like, like one of the gods from, like... like I mean, like, things- God, God. Okay, so like just creation looked yeah. at him and was like, "You gotta go, you gotta go back." Okay. Yeah, they're like, "Okay, I yeah, that, you're I still needed. Bye bye. Go on, shoot." <laughs> literally, just came back. It's literally a Deus Ex Machina. Like he came back because God willed it. Yeah, essentially. Uh, but yeah, so my getting back to my recommendation, Dark Knight Strikes yeah, Again. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's such good artwork and it's such they just do really well with having these little moments that are really moving uh such as Shazam dying and when he does die Wonder Woman is there and is like hey we're gonna get you help we're gonna save you transform back into Billy Batson to buy you some time and Shazam's like yeah that was something nobody ever really got we didn't we weren't the same person we swapped places and 
Billy was always a sickly kid. He died years ago. It's just me. And Wonder Woman asks him, well, what's going to happen? And his only response is, where does a dream go when you wake up? Where do you think a dream goes when you wake up, RJ? Nowhere. It goes into nothing. So Shazam... What do you mean, nothing? I mean nothing. So Wonder Woman tells Shazam to go out with a lion's roar, and the next panel is just this very stylized Shazam, like, word over the panel that's blue and with the rubble black as the lightning strikes and Shazam ceases to exist. But yeah, that's my recommendation. What you got? Hell yeah. I have got, um, I will follow along, uh with the, the line of talking about some of the world's greatest detectives, I will say I just started reading Sherlock Holmes like oh. for the first time ever. Um, uh, my stepbrother had, has this, this volume that's like the complete Sherlock Holmes volume one, which from what it sounds like from what I've read on the back and in the intro, it's basically all of the major Sherlock Holmes stories um, including the one where he dies and then the one where he comes back, mm. um, where he's just back. And, uh, like basically all the major ones that Conan Doyle published, plus some auxiliary texts. I don't know what the volume two would have or what it does have, but, yeah. uh, I've just, I got through the introduction, which was like 30 or 35 pages. Cause it's basically just people talking about like, Sir Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle was, this is how he lived. This is how he died. This is who Sherlock Holmes was. This is what why these books were so popular when they came out, blah, blah, blah. It's just like basically historical and personal context. Um, uh-huh. And I just started the first book after the introduction for this volume. I started a, a study in Scarlet. I'm only like three or four pages in. But... It's really great. Um, I ju- I literally just got to the point where home or, uh, Watson meets Holmes for the first time. Oh, and it's like fascinating because I feel like we tend to think of Holmes as like very like stoic or yeah. um, reserved, but logical and kind of witty. But the way he's introduced is very like he's very childlike. He's very easily excited. He's very like absorbed in his own work and he's clearly very intelligent, but he's also like he's not like the proper kind of Victorian gentleman, which I think is it reminds me a lot, a lot of like how I've seen Doctor Who portrayed. That makes sense. Um, the initial, the initial, it, it it kind of actually does. It, it tracks smarter than the everyone same, else like, in the room, but also <laughs> has that childlike sense of enjoyment at exploring the unknown. Yeah, well, because Sherlock Holmes and the Doctor just share that characteristic where it's like it, they they kind of know what's going on most of the time. For them, the mystery isn't what's going on. It's like why it's going on or how it's happening that they yeah. will solve. Um, it's not a question of what, and, like, what happened. It's clearly there's a murder here. It's why yeah. did they get murdered? At the very least, it's like, well, somebody died. Well, how did they die? Why do you think they died? Blah, blah, blah. You go from there. And yeah. that's what I was the most interested in. Um, or the thing that's been the most fascinating to me, because again, I've never read Sherlock Holmes. Obviously, I know about him just from cultural osmosis. But and I, the I, 
famous, excellent adaptation, Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century. Absolutely. Also, don't forget the Jimmy Neutron episode where he is Sherlock Holmes. That that also serves as the foundation of my knowledge for what Sherlock Holmes Have you Holmes actually is. seen um, Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd century? Friends, unfortunately. So, I, oh, the Jimmy Neutron episode great premise. What is it? Uh, is it so like they Sherlock bring Holmes gets cryogenically frozen. And I can't remember. It's either he's cryogenically frozen or they clone him. Because there's villains doing nefarious deeds, and he has a cyborg uh, Watson going around helping him, but it's just okay. normal Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd yeah. century of, like, flying so cars an- and robots. Animated or live action? Animated. Kids show. Like, I've definitely seen stills, I feel like, from the show, but I don't know if I ever saw it as a kid. I wouldn't be surprised if I did. What was it on? Was it on I like PBS? Know. I don't remember. It was one of those things, like, I only remember the commercials. Because mm-hmm. it was such an out-there premise. Yeah, I think, like, I don't know. I, I, I think a character like Holmes is fascinating because what makes him so striking or what made him so striking was he was so different. Yeah. Um, to the Victorians, like, the idea of an eccentric scientist was usually more ascribed to like a mad scientist like a frankenstein mm-hmm. and holmes is essentially a mad scientist but he's spun in a more positive like relatable light where for the yeah. first time people like grab- he's more he was the first Franklin like victor frankenstein great way to put it actually he's more like a just uh he's just more of a human being rather than like he, he's very devoted just to finding out what's going on, which is a very, very relatable motive. Um, and uh, I think that's what's the most interesting about him is I, I genuinely thought, because you're reading a piece of literature that was written like 120, 130 years ago, I was like, well, his introduction is going to be more formal. And of course, because the language is just older, it sounds more formal. It's a little more prosy. Yeah. But the way that he is like, he behaves. It's it's very personable. It's very Tony Stark. It's very <laughs> like Iron Man. You can see why they picked Robert Downey Jr. for it because it's just like you. Re- yeah, you read it and you're like, that's. I mean that. I mean that is it's that charming, Marvel. personable, a little bit edgy, with the sarcasm, the like comments, like if it was somebody who was saying yeah. it in a different way with a different intention, it'd come off as rude. Oh yeah. shit! I lost. Yeah. Wait, what'd you say? I lost. I was you. saying that like a particularly like you said it was compared to Tony Stark, and mm-hmm. it's that uh, personable, intelligent, but and they'll make comments that anybody else makes with different intentions, different intonations could come off as rude, but because it's them, the way they say it, the way they're presenting it, it's more lighthearted and meant as a joke between friends versus a put down. Well, I think the the nice thing about people like Tony Stark, or I should say characters like Tony Stark or Sherlock Holmes is the idea that somebody can still be, still behave relatively like a regular person, but have these like, excuse me, these capabilities, these like deductive or, I mean, and granted to be fair, I feel like with Holmes, either because of just his legacy or just how Conan Doyle constructed him. He is ultimately more personable because he is not, he is intelligent, but he's also, 
hardworking. And those yeah. are two separate characteristics. I feel like Tony Stark is hardworking because he's intelligent. He's got like an implicit, at least in the Marvel films, he be, they give him this like implicit sense of duty where he's like, well, I'm very smart. I'm the only one who could figure this kind of stuff out. So it's my job to solve these problems. Well, Whereas you bring yeah. that up. Uh, I'm trying to remember now because I read an article about it. I think it was a cut line. It's either in the script or it was cut from the first Iron Man movie where he has the city that he built, this model city. And he's talking to the reporter and the reporter's like, he's like, oh yeah, I built this for my dad. And the reporter's like, oh, did, did, what did he think? He's yeah, he, he never came up to look at it. And so why'd you build it? And he, Tony's response is, it's an apology. Or for what? Living. <laughs> like, I think, it, I think it was a cut line, but in the original script it was, he built that whole city as an apology to his dad because his dad was so focused on the work that the kid is technically in the way. And I, I feel like that's almost what makes Holmes a more timeless and compelling character in certain degrees, but also less personable is the fact that as far as I know, he does have relationships with other people that affect him. But he is, for the most part, like absorbed in his own questions and problems. Whereas Tony Stark is more, especially through, granted, I am not like a comics guy. I only know what I've seen in the movies. But how they make him out to be in the movies, it's more like he's burdened by the idea that he never measured up to his dad and his dad's intelligence. And so he has to try and use his intelligence to make the world a better place, partially because he feels like it's his duty as someone who's that intelligent and also because he feels guilt for never giving his dad or thinking he never gave his dad what his dad wanted. It also doesn't um, help that which, like, uh, <clears throat> just off the first Iron Man movie, the two responses were to try and run away in the opposite lifestyle of, yeah, I'm intelligent, but I'm going to be the playboy versus uh-huh. when he, cha- by the end of the film, when he's okay, I I haven't even attempted to really measure up the way I should have. I've let all these bad things happen because of my ignorance, because of my attempting to not be my dad. I need to move I, forward honest, in this direction. I think, honestly, it sounds weird. I think you could definitely make an, an argument or a, a case that um, the first time he says, like in the press conference at the end of the first Iron Man movie... Um, where he just says, I am Iron Man, um, is such a, it was such a shift in how those stories were told because the, the, the audience really only knew superhero stories where it was like, Oh, well, I'm a hero. Yeah. I'm a hero. I have to keep it secret. They never had a character where it was like, Oh, you can be a hero and be a person and it's obviously dangerous, but for them being a superhero really is just like, it's another part of it. It's a job, but it's a job that gets a lot of people they know hurt and is just, it it involves a lot. Um, And and, like before that, like you said, before that everybody was used to be either the secret identity because the movies that had come out before were the Fox movies. mm Spider-Man has a secret identity. Daredevil has a secret identity. The X-Men hide themselves because of their powers. Or DC, you had the yeah. uh, Superman hides his identities. Batman hides his identity. 
just nothing else out there had anything like that. No, and those films were compelling in their in their own right. Like I would oh, yeah, still yeah, yeah. argue. I'm, I just meant more like the revealing the identity part. Yes, it like the I. Wait, sorry, you cut out again. I don't uh, know if that's me. You're the, just the but, revealing the identity part of it. That uh, all of the prior superhero films had some aspect of the heroes hiding themselves, versus like you said. Mm-hmm. him saying I am Iron Man at the press conference was something that hadn't been done before. Yeah. It w- well, it's just even for the audience, it's like, holy shit. Now when I get to see this character next, it's like, I can understand that you don't have to worry about the rules of like protecting secret identity or whatever, but it's nice because for him, the threat is still there. The threat of somebody hurting his loved ones is still present. It's just something he has to deal with. And I feel like um, with Batman and Spider-Man, like the two most prominent, I'd argue, superhero figures before Iron Man in our pop culture, like with Batman and Spider-Man, Spider-Man's more like a story about just genuinely youth and accepting um, like the awkward unfairness of growing up like that's really what i think spider-man is about is like you get all these things but you don't know how to use them and you have all these different people telling you how to use them and you're just confused and you have to deal with it and he had to to hide that and then batman is more just like he really is just a modern retelling i think an american retelling of sherlock holmes but it's more just like um I don't know. There is something that just draws me to those Christopher Nolan Batman movies and not even just the dark Knight, Cause I like the dark Knight, but I wouldn't say it's my favorite out of the three. Yeah. I'd say dark Knight rises. Like dark Knight rises for me. I like Bane. I, I like Bane as a villain. I think he's, See, and I never actually saw rises. I never really, got around uh, to it. It's um, I think the nice thing about those movies too, is you can, if you watch all three of them, you pick up on the stuff that happens in them. Like yeah. there are references, but like I but, forgot Scarecrow was uh, in the second one. He's in he's in Batman Begins. He's like yeah. one of the main villains. He's, he's like the main, the main he, villain. He's one of the main ones in the first one, but in the second one he shows up again at a drug deal that Batman busts. Yeah, and that's what I like about the Christopher Nolan movies is they do behave in a way it's it's like the spirit of the old TV show where you have these recurring uh villain of the weeks, but they'll team up with other with like, or villains from the last week will make a small appearance, but like memorable appearance. Usually like the, you know, Scarecrow shows up in the dark Knight, but the dark Knight is clearly the Joker's movie. And he also like, he shows up, Scarecrow shows up again in the dark Knight rises, but the dark Knight rises is clearly Bane's movie. Um, I think they even make a reference or two to, um, I was also reading something the other day. Uh, I was reading something the other day that uh, the reason, the in-story reason someone came up with for why Joker doesn't show up in the third movie at the after the breakout is because he thinks he won in the second movie. That the whole goal was for him, he was trying to drive Batman to kill, and because the police department claims Batman killed Harvey Dent, he thinks he won. Well, see, here's the, that's what I think is interesting about the Batman story is like, cause the way that the Joker in the Dark Knight frames, 
the choice because there's the choice, right? You rescue either Rachel or Harvey. Yeah. A- and he he the Joker says killing is a choice. You have to make a choice. That will mean that you br- making this choice will mean that you kill. You will save somebody, but you will kill somebody. You won't be able to get both of them. So. Like, is there an argument to be made then that killing is just inherent in the, the choice of the action or in the intent behind it? And if so, it is like, would Bruce's intent to save Rachel mean that he did actually kill, that Batman actually genuinely killed? Not that he was forced into it, but that he made a choice that resulted in somebody's death. Is that really what killing just is, do you uh, think? Or do you think no. it's actually pulling the trigger it's a it will have a weight on you but it's not the same thing because he clearly yeah he had to make that choice of who he personally was going to go after but as soon as he had the information he sent other people to it because clearly they both people were saved i guess i mean they're not could you make the arc uh, no, Harvey, di- Harvey, Harvey, or Rachel dies. Oh, well, her, her building blows up and Harvey Gordon lives, got but there, he was, though, didn't he? he, they got there and then the building explodes. Or yeah, actually, so it's, I think it's, yeah, Bruce it's not got like there. They didn't make an attempt. Batman didn't choose, Batman didn't have to choose, okay, I'm going to kill this person he had to choose where am I going to focus my efforts, and even then, he still didn't really succeed. No, because the person he was going to died. Or no, he was going to, because it was switched. So he thought he was going to Rachel, but he ends up going to Harvey. Excuse me. And then Gordon thinks that they're going to Harvey, but they end up, excuse me, going to Rachel. And, And like, I don't know, I think it's... What if the Gotham PD had cars as fast as Batman's? Would they have gotten there sooner? Like, but that see, and that's the thing is like, so does he would probably take that into consideration, or at the very least, you assume in the choice that's given to you, you pick one person, or the other. Picking one person will save them, but it will condemn the other to death. Is that killing somebody? Knowing that you not picking them is going to kill them, is that killing? Um, if you have the faculties to save them. You can't say both. So can you actually not kill in that situation? Or is it just impossible? It's I don't think so. I don't think so, but I think it's complicated. It's very complicated. Because the problem comes down to do you think of it as you killed someone or you saved someone? Because you could also make the choice to go neither and then two people die. But if your rule is that you don't kill anybody. But I guess that is unfair because... It's also not fair because you're not the one who set up the situation. Joker is going to kill two people. You have have the chance to save one of them. That's fair. I think think there's a big difference between voluntarily coming to the point where you decide where you have to make the decision to kill somebody or not, like you're actually putting the gun to their head. Yeah. Or you're you're in a situation where you will kill through an act of choice, but not necessarily through an act of killing. Like I would argue that an act of killing is you intend to kill somebody and you do it. Not necessarily that you ended up in a situation where it's like one, like 
saving this person is condemning this person. So how do you win in that scenario? But I, I do think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to argue if he broke his rule or not. I don't like think in so. any capacity. I think I think it's I think it's possible. I think that's why he goes into the in in the Dark Knight Rises. He's in like a depression. It's great. Yeah. He's just like miserable. He's been shut up in Wayne Manor for like a year, two, three years, whatever. But, but it's uh. But he also has I don't know. to. I, uh, yeah. I think part of it too is that he had to take on just the idea that Batman did break that rule because the police department claimed he killed Harvey. Because that was the whole point at the end of the second one is that the the police department the the Gotham needs heroes. I'm not. I can't be that hero right now. Pin it on me. It gives. It shows that the police department has teeth. And gives them but something to go after. I think that's the point, though, of Batman, is that he... So, for obviously, in the end, you know that it's not true. You know yeah. that he didn't kill Harvey Dent, that it... Um, I can't remember how it happens. It's like they're wrestling, and they both fall, and Harvey dies, and Batman doesn't. That is just... That just happens. I would argue that is more what you would just call fate, than anything than yeah. you know um, but because obviously gordon and the people us the audience who knows about batman is like well batman is the hero he's he's doing everything for a reason but a hero doesn't necessarily mean that he's clean like totally clean yeah so i think that's an interesting thing because i feel like what they were trying to communicate in the dark knight rises was more he was trying to run himself through the past the moments from the past several years and just be like, well, did I write, did I make the right decision? And not even in like a, like, Oh, I love Rachel, blah, blah, blah. That's what they go with. But I do think it'd be more, it's more interesting to look at him from like, did he just sink into a depression? Because he was like, I said, I was going to do this one thing. I said, I wasn't going to kill. Like, that's what makes me different from other people is that I don't kill. I just bring people to justice. If they die on their own terms, that's different. But did I kill back then? And yeah. so I do, do I even, do I even deserve to be seen as a hero by the people who still see me as a hero? Cause most people see him as just like a crazy psychopath vigilante who dressed up as yeah. bad, but we, we, he's the audience bad. see him and Gordon and other people see him as like, well, he's an underground hero. Yeah. Um, but I guess that, that just depends on like, are you okay with your heroes? basically has a code and then it's like, well, he might've broken it. Like he's not totally clean. Um, and the dark, the dark Knight rises kind of goes into that. Like Gordon kind of has discussions about it. I, I recommend it. Honestly. Um, I'd watch the dark Knight as a refresher, but it's, it's pretty good. I, I like it. Cool. Deal. Personally. So, uh, shouting into the void, who are we going to shout at? Uh, I actually wanted to do, I had a, uh, an idea for this. You have an idea for this. Are you sure they have a Twitter you, account? Is your, well, no, I was, I was, uh, I was going to do Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. Cobell. I want to do Arnold though. I want to do Arnold. Okay. Yeah. Did you have an, another idea that wasn't on our list for this week? Um. It sounded like you might have. Oh, I was just thinking, I was just trying to think between 
what the options were provided. Let me think really quick. We should talk to... Options provided uh, this week included uh, Chris Evans, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Taco Bell. Well, we, dude, if anything, we should uh, shout to Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen? I, I hope you guys are doing okay. Can we have some free fudge sickles? What is Please. Dairy Queen's Twitter handle? Oh, hey, at Dairy Queen. There we go. Yeah, there you uh, go. Yo, at Dairy Queen, hope the ice cream's doing well. Yeah. Why not? Okay. We did Dairy Queen. Hell yeah. I love Dairy Queen. It's It holds a nostalgic place in my heart. I don't think I've ever... I've been like once. Maybe. To go, it's pretty simple. It's not like amazing, but I mean, it it's is... Like uh, a... Oh, wait. Dairy Queen. I was thinking of Wendy's. I don't know why I was thinking of Wendy's. No, Dairy Queen. I've been to Dairy Queen. I've been to Dairy Queen. It's pretty good. Okay. It's pretty good. Hell yeah. So uh, a quick, like, five minutes on community before we wrap this up. Yeah, why not? So I, I got through all six seasons of Community. They're on Netflix. You think? I really enjoyed it. You've uh, never seen it before. you seen it before or no? Never seen like, it. It's, Have you? Oh, yeah. I've seen all of it. I thought I've so. Seen it, like, I've watched, like, the whole series a few times. Had you seen it from, like... Had you seen like gifts or photos? I've like, seen I just a couple of the memes, like the uh, Shang yeah, holding like, a really tiny piece stuff. of paper. Yeah, yeah. Or the well, that's where like hot gay comes from. That's yeah. like that. I what'd you think? I really enjoyed it. I thought they did a really good job of it. Uh, sixth season was probably my least favorite, only because they yeah. they by that point they'd phased out so many characters. And I think then you, ended by phasing out two more of them. Did you kind of know the behind-the-scenes stuff that was going on? No. Where, like, Dan, Dan Harmon got fired after the third season. Okay. So, do you know how they refer to in the show? I think it's in the fifth season. They refer to the fourth season as the gas leak year. Yeah. Um. So... That was when they brought in other writers, and even though Community hadn't been doing well, it had a very dedicated fan base up until the fourth season, and the fan base they had was like, this fourth season is not good, it's not like how we remember Community, so by the fifth season, NBC rehired Dan Harmon, but the show had already fallen too far in popularity for them to make any significant recovery, so they moved to Yahoo screen for the sixth season, I want to say, and that was his... There was a lot of stuff between him and a lot of the cast and, and both good and bad stuff that happened, it, it sounds like. And uh, he, he it sounds like he worked, he tried to work hard on the sixth season and try to make it something where it was like a goofy kind of send off, but also made sense for the main cast. Yeah, at least. and it, I, uh, it definitely felt like it accomplished that. It was just weird for me at season f- like. Season 5 in particular starts off with Pierce dead and mm-hmm. Troy leaves like two or three episodes in and then season 6 rolls around and um what's her name has left Brita. not no not Britta not Shirley. Amy Shirley Shirley, Shirley left yeah. after season 5 yeah which I what, yeah I don't know it like, I said, season six did a very good job of wrapping things up 
for everybody, but it just, the hashtag has been six seasons in a movie, and uh, one of the Russo brothers said recently in a, like, Twitter thing that, like, yeah, he's down for doing a movie, I just don't know what they do. I think they, I think if Dan Harmon really wanted to, he could, um, the difficult thing with him is just that he's very, like, he's very artistic. He's very like, you know, I'm going to write when I want to, but he's also aware of his own faults. Like apparently him and Justin Roiland, when they were going to write the first script for Rick and Morty, he was like, he basically, it sounded like they both locked themselves in a trailer for eight hours. Cause they were like, if we don't do this now, if we don't finish this script now, we're, we're just not going done. to. So, yeah. So it, that's the type of person he is where you, it sounds like you literally need to lock him in a room and get him to write, but when he does, it's it's pretty good. Um, but I think I I think the first community are genuinely probably some of the most, if not the best, definitely some of the most innovative television from a storytelling perspective. Yeah. Um, you just get totally new ideas that you've never really seen on a sitcom before, and it's it's hard to articulate that um, well, I, because a lot of it is yeah. I think it was really smart what, that they had the character of Abed being that TV and movie yes. obsessed character so that they could do anything sure. they wanted. So dangerous because so many of those shows, though, like you could have a, like, I think that was one of the problems that people complain about with the Big Bang theories. Like, Sheldon is too objective. Like, he's too much a self referential machine for the show and the writers. So it's amazing, I think, and it speaks to Dan Harmon's control of a character and his stories. Yeah. Where Abed, like, I rarely ever feel, especially in the first three seasons, that Abed is a an intrusive character. Because usually a character like that who reminds you, like, oh, this is a TV show, you'd be like, get out of here. Well, I but think it he helped actually. That- uh, the other characters would get annoyed that he was doing it because it reflects the audience saying like, yeah, Come on, don't, don't remind us. And I'd also say that like the difference between Sheldon and Abed is big bang theory. As I understand it, having seen very little of it is very grounded and realistic. They don't do goofy paintball fights, mimicking apocalypse scenarios. They don't have, uh, I don't know. They don't have to take classes with the teacher that is no longer their teacher. Like, in community, they just get a goofy. So they can be a little bit more okay with that because they're going to get in goofier scenarios than on but Big Bang Theory. I think what's important is to note that um, community the what makes it work is it's like goofiness with restraint. Yeah. So it's not totally like there are the, that's the most important thing is the characters and community, no matter what situation they're in, there are still very real relationships. They all share with each other. Yeah. Like you can call them sitcom-y or soap opera ish or melodramatic. I would argue that's just a facet of TV to an extent. Um, it's just a byproduct of the medium. Uh, maybe, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, I don't know. But point being, I think what works with the first three seasons of community is like 
Dan Harmon really knows what makes a good parody, which is like not necessarily always making fun of it. Like that's yeah. the nice thing about community's parody episodes is like there are fun or attempted fun moments in the parody world. Like the idea that the characters know it's a game, but they still get into they it, treat it like to it's a real. level. Yeah, it's it's, it's fun. What? Hi, Calvin. Hi. You came in at uh, just the wrong moment, actually. We really are about to wrap up. Damn. Oh, I was hoping I came in afterwards. No. <laughs> but uh, speaking of wrapping up, Calvin, thank you for stopping by just long enough to say hello. Uh, oh, and Matt is here just long enough to say hello as we wrap this up. Say hi, Matt. Nice. <laughs> oh, I'm here. Uh, wow, that's I was crazy. supposed to come so I could get my credit and maintain my lead ahead of you. Oh, oh my gosh, I am a champion of champions. Good save, man. No, I still think I have you. Well, nope. thank you guys for joining us here on Better Buddies this evening. Uh, thank you yeah. to the band Problem of Interest for allowing us to use their song Living in the Moment off the album Cross Off yesterday. You can find them on iTunes and Spotify. Go ahead and check them out. You can find us on the social media platforms, Facebook, Better Buddies Podcast. We're on Twitter at Better Budcast. And we have our Gmail, BetterBuddiesCast at gmail.com. Send us your info, your queries, your questions, your need for advice, your fan mail, your hate mail. Uh, need for speed. Send us your drugs. Uh, remember to share the show with a friend. Uh, you can share it because you enjoy it, or share it to torture them. We fully endorse that, uh, as long yeah. as it gets into the ears of someone who's never heard it before. Speaking of which, um, for my piece of media that I want to share this week, <laughs> because that segment, you can, you can splice it in there, right? <laughs> you can, like, you can, but the question is, will I? I don't know. Kevin? <laughs> Kevin, get uh, but uh, yeah, you were talking about uh, uh, problem of interest, so I thought I would uh, plug a friend of mine. Uh, her name is Jade Ashley Music. You can check her out on Spotify, and uh, she does some like Facebook Live, Instagram Live feeds. So just search Jade Ashley Music, and it's great. There, that was my piece of media. Good plug, Matt. Way to go. Thanks. Thanks. Hell yeah. I, I came here just it. for that. <laughs> uh, threw me off my groove, though. You threw off my groove. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I think that actually is everything. So, uh, gentlemen, last but not least, be a better buddy. Even if you show up an hour late to a podcast. (laughs) Even if we all do it, don't we, Matt? Uh, Only you and me, James. (laughs) Only you and Calvin. Oh, no. Actually, RJ was an hour late. Yeah, I have been an hour late to my own podcast. Hell yeah. That's that's a power move right there. Is it? All right, Matt, time to join the crazies. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. What? Uh, we're going to go play... Uh, I'm not playing Minecraft, but I'm going to join... I was going to join the chat, because video chat's fun. Yeah, isn't it? 
It's great. We should try it. We sometime. should definitely do it more. We should do it more in our group chats. Okay. We definitely should.